I want to encourage you to turn to Psalm 8. Excited to be here in this psalm. Lots of songs, even the prelude, or not the prelude, but the offering that uh, are based on this psalm. At our annual Spring Presbytery a few weeks ago, I was asked to preach on the topic of meekness and humility, particularly based upon Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And one of the points I made is that humility and meekness can be subtly distorted and become unbiblical and lead Christians to believe that the only proper response of one who is poor in spirit or one who mourns over sin is to live a life in a state of perpetual misery and self-loathing. And Scripture helps us to gain this balanced assessment of our lives. We are indeed to be poor, crushed by the reality of the depravity of our sin. We are to be mourning over that as we contemplate the holiness of God, that God turns those ashes into dancing. He restores dignity and honor through the humble and uh, meek posture that we take before God as we obey Him. So turn, if you will, if you haven't already, to Psalmate. This is one of the most majestic psalms in the entire book of Psalms. Let's stand as we read God's Word. It is holy and inspired. It is authoritative for us today, commanding our attention and our respect. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You've set Your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, You have established strength because of Your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? And yet, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, as we read these wonderful words and think about what they mean, Lord, help us to have a right view of you, a right view of ourselves. Use us for the good of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, perhaps today's psalm comes as a little bit of a relief. So many of the early psalms in the book have seemed heavy with either David's laments and troubles or uh, perhaps sobering with the challenges and seriousness of following God despite you know, what we face. And here we have a psalm that's filled with praise. It's filled with wonder, the whole thing. And verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. As far as David was concerned, God had done something that caused His glory to shine clearly in all of creation. What had He done? Well, a couple of hints are found in those next few verses. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And the words for 
babies and infants actually are more generic and broader than the English words that are translated there. The word for baby in Hebrew is a young child. And the word for infant refers to a nursing child, which in Israel could have been anywhere from birth to three years. And so more likely what David is is saying is young children and toddlers, you know, the weakest category of humanity. And they're saying something that is powerful enough to cause even David's enemies to stop in their tracks. What would that be? Well, most likely it's the praise of God. You see, a little child can stop the most powerful of men because that child possesses the truth about a mighty God. Even Satan himself cannot stand against the simple truth of Jesus loves me, this I know. And so in Matthew 21, we read as Jesus actually quotes Psalm 8. Says the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Don't you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you not heard out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And the children spoke the truth that day. They spoke the truth of the gospel. And the chiefs, uh, chief priests and the scribes were brought to shame and they were silenced as a result of these true words, this praise that came from the lips of these children. Some commentators think that the reason words like foe and enemy and avenger are used in Psalm 8 is because David recently was victorious in battle. And the young children are rightly attributing David's victory to God. It would be similar to the children who are attributing Jesus' work, miraculous work, in healing the blind and the sick to his actual alignment with the Lord. Well, that's what the children could have been doing in David's time. Proclaiming God's strength through David. And that's really the point of Psalm 8, isn't it? David marveling that whatever he is, even children can proclaim the fact that in our weakness, God is strong and he can triumph. Listen to what David tells King Saul. This is familiar passages. If you are, were with us when we went through the books of Samuel, here in chapter 17, David says, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock... I went after him and struck him and and delivered it from his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and and struck him and killed him. And your your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine, that's Goliath, shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, as we saw at the time, that attitude is so sharply contrasting with, I think, the attitude that we often take in our lives as we process our experiences and our victories. I mean, our tendency is to say, for example, when we secure a new contract or when we 
receive evidence that uh, people are praising our children or, or whatever, our, our tendency is to say things like, you know, what luck, or I, I did a pretty good job, or any number of things. But is it what it should be, which is, O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You did this. My children were praised for the training that we put into their lives. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Your glory is being demonstrated right now. I, this contract, that was you. That's what we're called to marvel at as we read Psalm 8. You know, scripture teaches us that all things happen according to God's wise and holy providence. Even as we read in Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And then Paul in Ephesians 1.11 describes God as the one who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And David knew. He knew the source of His blessings. He knew the source of His strength. And that is why he is so enthusiastic. Even a child could be triumphant because of the strength of God. And the contrast between our weakness and God's strength is highlighted in Psalm 8.3 where it says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. See what he's doing? I came home the other night from an event and I knew that Corey and Hannah and their family were out in our front yard. It was about 10 p.m. I knew they were coming out to look at the meteor shower. So they had planned to wake up their sleepy children and go out, lay out in the grass and look up at the meteors that were falling that night. It was a dark night. I knew they were out there and they had come because of this very reason to look up at the heavens and marvel at what God had done. Who am I, David says, that God should care for someone like me. You made all this. What do you care about me? But as self-absorbed as we all are, every once in a while, we can catch a glimpse of our insignificance. And that's what David's doing. He looks at the heavens. He says, what is man in general that you are mindful of him? We were back east, as you know, a couple weeks ago. And we had the opportunity to walk through two famous graveyards. One is in Savannah, Georgia. dates back to the early 1700s. And some of the more famous individuals, including the first governor, uh, Edward Telfair of Georgia, are buried in these lavish marble tombs. And if you've been to cemeteries that have graves that are you know, 300 years old, what do they look like? They're typically marble, and they've got, they're covered in black streaks, right, because of the weathering. And the lettering, you can hardly read them. We had to keep pulling up maps to say, okay, so who's buried here? Because you can't, it, it, just the, the passage of time has worn it smooth. All, what must have been beautiful uh, tombstones and grave markers and memorials have really become nearly unreadable and even to some extent unattractive with all of the, the black weathering. 
what has time done? It's shown that they weren't as important as, as either they or people around them thought that they once were. You realize that most people don't know the first names of their great-great-grandparents. Do you know their names? I don't. Farthest back I can go are my great-grandparents. And your great-great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, will probably not know your name. And that's a sobering thought. That the memory of our lives so quickly fades from the world. And it's sobering to realize that the universe doesn't revolve around you. That's sobering. And you go, well, wait a second. I thought we were talking about how this was a nice change in Psalm 8. How we have been talking about laments and troubles and challenges. And now we were here at this this psalm that has these positive, worshipful words and the dignity and honor that we're receiving from it. We're not supposed to be lamenting our insignificance, are we? Well, it might sound strange, but David knew something that we often forget. And that is this, to celebrate our dignity as being created in the image of God. To receive the honor of being called an adopted child and an heir of the King of Kings, we must first understand that we are not the center of the universe. And until we fully comprehend that truth, we will not be able to appreciate how high God's blessings have actually lifted us. You know, I sometimes wonder, how can we be how can we be dull in our worship? How can we sing some of these hymns of praise, right? Majesty and I will glory in my Redeemer. How can, we, how can we sing these in low mumbling voices? Some of us don't sing or just endure. How can we offer prayers of thanksgiving in monotone? When we fill ourselves, this is why, when we fill ourselves with vain and empty conceit, worship and God's blessings always seem trivial. The more important that we think we are, the bigger we are, the smaller God gets. And the smaller we are, the bigger God gets. And that's the paradox. David's word for man in verse 4 is one that in Hebrew emphasizes frailty. It's one that's not often used, but he uses it very intentionally here. What is there in a weak man, one that just is here for a moment, that could possibly catch your attention, Lord? Well, in that same passage of 1 Samuel 17 that I read earlier, David mentions the Philistine, that's Goliath. And in that incident, we see David's heart revealed. When we went through it a little over a year ago, I pointed out that Goliath taunted Israel, remember, for 40 days. 40 days. And I mentioned why that time was important. Christ fasting, for example, in the desert lasted 40 days. And then was followed by Satan's taunting. 40 days is often a time of testing. It's a time of testing Moses And here Goliath tests Israel, and by extension, David. And how does David respond? 
Do you remember? You come to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down, this is bold, and I will cut off your head. You may be three times as heavy as I am and big, but I am going to do these things. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines, the states, and the birds of the air, and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. See, David knew his insignificance, but he knew his resource of power. As David wrote in in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And he relates how all the things that God has created, all the things that he was marveling about, God's actually placed those things under the dominion and rule of man. But notice how David ends the psalm with that bookend with which he started the psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So what could be a greater honor than to see that God had raised David above the curse of fallen existence? Not only had God preserved a weak man, but he crowned him with dignity and with honor. When you look at your life, do you see those same blessings? Do they seem trivial to you, or do you see honor raining down upon you every day of your life, and do you see them as crowns? In the opening chapter of Genesis, God describes the task that man was given. What David's describing in Psalm 8 is first presented here in Genesis 1 where God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is part of what is in David's mind. He's, he's reflecting upon what God said at the very beginning. And there in Genesis, Moses had told the people that God created man in his image. And we use that term and we assume that everyone does or should understand what it means, but I actually think we have little idea of what the word image means. We know that it distinguishes us in some way from other creatures and we assume that it must be something good, but what precisely does it tell us? Well, first, the word image is humbling and in the ancient world of the Old Testament, the term was used for a statue or a figurine. It was used to describe this three-dimensional representation of a person or a thing, but the statue was not the real thing. And when the Bible uses the term image to describe us, it it is very clearly saying we are finite, physical representations of our Creator, but we are not God. And contrary to what anyone else today might say, we are not equal with our Maker. 
We do not have a spark of divinity within us. We are creatures that reflect our Creator, and that humble status becomes even more evident when we notice the kind of material that God used to make us in His image. Right? I mean, you had, using that term image, different sorts of images in the ancient world, and archaeologists have uncovered statues of amazing materials, gold and and silver, even those studded with gems. But is that what God used for us? I'm afraid there was nothing so special. As my chemistry teacher used to remind our class, a total worth of chemicals that make up the human body is less than $10. And Genesis 2.7 says, The Lord God made the man from the dust of the ground. So, no, it was not some diamond-studded image. It was not like the 90-foot-tall gold, silver, bronze, and iron statue of King Nebuchadnezzar in, in the book of Daniel. It was a clay figure. And Genesis 1, though, is written during a time of the great pharaohs of Egypt and the emperors of Samaria and China and those civilizations There were commoners and there was royalty. And in most of those civilizations, the kings or emperors were considered divine. And we encounter that type of class distinction and and separation, caste systems, even in our own time. Less than 100 years ago, Hitler's Germany eliminated 6 million Jews because they weren't of the supposedly superior Aryan race. There are races of all colors in all countries and continents that treat other groups as inferior because they think of themselves as above. Even mothers aborting their children because their babies would interfere with their personal freedom or children neglecting the needs of their aging parents. We have all kinds. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be color or ethnicity. It can be economic class. It can be age. And that's why when Moses says that all people from the Pharaoh down to the slave are, are descended from images of clay, he is saying that every person not only comes from the dust of the ground, but in the big picture of life, is insignificant and equal. And let me add one more thing to this thought. The people Moses is talking about in Genesis 1 and 2, who were they? Adam and Eve. Before the fall. Before there was disease and death. It's not as if they started out being made of gold And we're transmutated into clay after the fall because of sin. No, God made Adam and Eve from the dust of the ground from the beginning. And if our perfect parents were such humble creatures, how much more are we? And so with those thoughts and minds, consider this. God did not make Adam and Eve in the image of rocks. He didn't make them in the image of trees or animals. 
There was nothing so common in the design for us, for instead God carefully shaped the first man and woman so that they were in His likeness. And that makes us creatures of incomparable dignity. And no, I'm not going to take the time to describe what that likeness is intended to be, whether physical or spiritual. I think most of us would agree that what's most significant in that is the spiritual likeness in which we are created. And yet, the point is that we were made in God's likeness. God's likeness. And so, even as I mentioned every major early civilization in which the king or the emperor was considered divine by saying that man was an image and made from the dust of the earth, this may have brought royalty down to the level of the commoner, but by saying that men and women, every single one of them were created in the image of God, this also brought the commoner up to the level of royalty. And in the ancient world, the commoner had no such value. No intrinsic dignity. It was the, commoner, the common man's destiny to suffer and die for the gratification of kings. That's why we see these labor gangs that are building the pyramids of Egypt. That's why we see the cruel enslavement of Israel in Egypt. How could the Egyptians or the Ottomans or the Germans justify their attempts to destroy Israelites? The answer is simple. Because in their mind, these groups of people possess no worth. For Egypt, the Israelite shepherds were no more valuable than the sheep that they herded. And that is the same philosophy that we have in our own time period. Darwinism, survival of the fittest. They say the strong survive. And I've said this before, we vilify Hitler in the attempt to elevate the Aryan super race, but he is just the epitome of Darwinistic survival of the fittest thinking. If he had been able to get away with it, he would have been the perfect Darwinian. How is he different in, in many ways than the early European settlers who settled in North America or the imperial colonists who took over many of the African countries? All of these are forms of the principle that the fittest survive. And if we reject the biblical concept of dignity where every human being possesses equal dignity, we inevitably arrive at that place. But the Bible says all people are royal images of God. Every descendant of Adam and Eve possesses the same honored status. And God bestowed great value and dignity not on a few, but on the entire human race. And so Moses affirms that dignity. And David affirms that dignity. Moses... You know, he's, he's got the purpose in particular. He's speaking to the Israelites and he wants them to remember these principles too. He's not just describing the treatment that the Egyptians had of the Israelites as slaves. He wants the Israelites to know how they should treat people in the future. 
He knew how easy it would be for the oppressed to become the oppressors. He knew the temptation it would be to mistreat the weak and the vulnerable, and that is why the law focuses so much on protecting widows and orphans and strangers. There would be no cruel caste system tolerated amongst God's people, and even the king would be under God's law. Servants were to be treated honorably. Judges were not to show favoritism to the rich and the powerful. Everyone, even the king, would be under the law, and all people were to be treated with the honor that they deserved as representatives and images of the invisible God. And so that is what David is marveling about in Psalm 8. We don't face the same culture that David or even Moses faced. Few modern people believe that dignity rests in kings. But today's culture may have exchanged those outdated notions for more democratic ideals, but the world hasn't stopped saying that some people are more valuable or important than others. Sure, the the filters are different today, but the, the treatment is still the same, whether the standards on people's incomes or their educations or their good looks or their careers. But Soulmate offers good news to all those who don't measure up to those false modern standards. Your value does not rest in external circumstance. God, the creator of all, is mindful of you. He cares for you. He's made you a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned you with glory and with honor. And I want to challenge you this morning to do a few things. First, look again at yourself, for God has declared that you are his royal image. You're not perfect. You're a humble creature made of clay, but you are more valuable because you image God. Discard the lies of the world and acknowledge that dignity. Second, remember, even as Moses was telling the people that the same truth applies to others, Christians are just as guilty of showing favoritism. And that's a temptation that you will face. We come to church on Sunday... We look around and we fail to see God's images. Right? I've always appreciated C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. In fact, I have, I have been amazed. I keep finding kind of books that were written. There's the Screw Loose Letters. I just discovered that was written a few decades ago. Screwtape Writes Again was written. You know, C.S., that book has really impacted our, uh, both, both the English, England and, and America and societies, but I appreciate this one part of the Screwtape Letters, and it's a book of advice, as you know, between a senior demon and a junior demon on how to keep people from becoming mature Christians, and so there are these letters back and forth of advice given for what to do. And here, in this particular advice, the senior demon is advising his nephew. It is fictional, of course. Children. With regard to the church, he says, all your patience sees when he goes inside is the local grocer. 
with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understand. And one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contain. You, you know, the nephew demon, you may know from a spiritual perspective, one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. It doesn't matter because you're patient as a fool. Provided that any of the neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or if they have double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must somehow therefore be ridiculous. And then he concludes, I've been writing hitherto on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course, if they do... If the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player or the man with squeaky boots is a miser, well, then your task is so much the easier. And Lewis is capturing the essence of something that we all do. We all look at the external. We're distracted by imperfection. We ridicule the customs of other cultures or we mock believers who don't live up to our idiosyncrasies. Well, what standards are we measuring people by? The world and what it values? Shouldn't we be measuring things by the truth of God's Word and what He values? He has taken men and women and He has made them kings and queens. Men, you are married to images of God. And you may have been married for decades. And you may have grown to the point where in your mind your wife has taken on kind of a two-dimensional aspect of somebody that you, you know, you know all their habits, you know what they do and say, and, and they've just become in your mind the mother of your children and the wife that you see when you get home, you are married to an image of God. Women, you are married to an image of God. When we devalue and diminish God's special creation by using the false standards of the world, by judging things by external appearance and not by the truth of God's word, we unjustly attack his likeness and we dishonor him. And the book of James presses that point home in James 3 when it says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. We can, bless, we can bless our Lord and Father, but we can curse people who are made in the likeness of God. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Men and women, the body of Christ, as the senior demon says, contains images of God. Why did God raise David to the pinnacle of human kingship? What made him unique? 
I hope we realize from this morning that it wasn't anything that David did, but what God did for David. It's why when we went through the books of Samuel, God was very intentional to say, David, you're not going to build me a house. Because I want you to have the perspective in the right direction. I'm going to build you a house. And you're going to remember that it's what I did for you. And yes, this brought many blessings. All of these things were were tremendous moves forward for David as God blessed his kingship and his kingdom. They were foretaste, though, of what was to come. And you may remember from our study in Hebrews how Hebrews 2 quotes Psalm 8. It says, For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. And so he he quotes this Psalm 8. And the author of Hebrews reminds us that while Psalm 8 is partially about David's life, it's partially about you and me as men and women created in the image of God and given this incomparable, unmerited dignity and honor by the King of Kings who is mindful of us, even though it is partially about that, this is ultimately about Jesus Christ. He is the perfect Son of Man, has been crowned with glory and honor, and all things will be made subject to Him. But the author, you see, does make a valid point. Even with regard to Christ, it's clear that soulmate is not yet fully realized. We read news accounts of protesters around Supreme Court justices' homes. Or about how our nation's president says that those who challenge critical race theory are trying to spread disinformation for a profit. We read about the head of the Russian space agency claiming that if NATO doesn't mind their own business, especially if Finland joins the NATO, well it's very clear that we could wipe out the entire face of Europe with our nuclear missiles within 30 minutes. We learn about parents around the country complaining at school board meetings about the introduction of LGBTQ plus and pornographic material into the elementary schools. And in the midst of all of this craziness, we have to agree with Hebrews, right? Everything isn't yet fully in order. And that's why verse 9 is so important. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. See, we may not see soulmate fulfilled fully in us yet. Nor may we see all things in order. We're still subject to death, all kinds of weaknesses and frailties. There's still injustice in the world, and it is corrupted with sin, and it is partial in its treatment of the lesser classes, and it's spinning out of control. But Jesus has passed through weakness and death, and he is crowned with glory and honor. And what do you do when things are spinning out of control? You don't give up. 
Psalm 8 teaches us that we continue to praise God. We celebrate that He is in control, that He is mindful of us, and He is the captain of our salvation, and He has gone before us, and He is reigning. He is reigning. And there will be a day that all are subject to Him and made a footstool at His feet. And as Hebrews 4 says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Psalm 8 is our confession. This is not a time for giving up. This is a time for holding fast. At the end of life, the living Lord will tell many people face to face the lamentable truth that their lives were a great yet insignificant performance. They will have looked to themselves and failed to take heed of the salvation message that was proclaimed by Christ to those who needed to recognize their insignificant, to lose their pride, and He will say, I do not know you. But friends, that need not be you. does not need to be you. God has called you to the truth. You have a high priest. He has interceded for you. He is interceding for you. Every promise is yes in Jesus Christ. You have an inheritance. You've been made kings and queens and priests in God's kingdom. Don't judge even the world by external appearance. Judge the world by the truth. Jesus reigns. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Psalm 8 and the reminder of how majestic your name is in all the earth. And then the contrast with how insignificant we are, your creation, but yet you made us men and women in your image. And yet you have called us to this great calling to take dominion of what you have made. Help us to remember those things even as we find ourselves frustrated by what is going on around us. Help us to not be distracted by sin and perversity and fear. Lord, help us to remember who wins. Help us to remember that Jesus has already tasted death and passed through the heavenlies and is now our high priest and our king. And Lord, let that free us to worship you as David did in Psalm 8, to give you the praise and glory and honor that is due you for every success that we have. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.